We are living through a new Cold War, Cold War II. And in the 21st century, one of the main ways that wars like this have been waged is through economic means. Economic warfare, also known as sanctions. Now, when sanctions are imposed unilaterally by a country without the support of the United Nations, they are referred to as unilateral coercive measures and they are illegal according to international law. And one quarter of the global population lives in countries that have been unilaterally sanctioned by the United States. The countries that are sanctioned by the U.S. and Europe also represent nearly one-third of the global economy of world GDP. And the use of sanctions as a weapon of economic warfare by the United States and its European allies has skyrocketed in recent years. Pretty much every week, Washington announces a new round of sanctions against a foreign country. And among those countries sanctioned by the United States are two of the most powerful nations on Earth, China and Russia. China has the world's largest economy when you measure its GDP at purchasing power parity, PPP, which is the best way to measure the size of an economy. And Russia has the sixth biggest economy in the world. Of course, China is also one of the most populous countries on Earth. It used to be the most populous, but it was recently overtaken by India. Still, China has 1.4 billion people. And the U.S. government has made it very clear that its goal is to sabotage the economies of both of these countries. In 2021, U.S. President Joe Biden said that his goal is preventing China from becoming, quote, the wealthiest country in the world and the most powerful country in the world. That's not going to happen on my watch. Similarly, the U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo said that Washington's goal is to, quote, slow down China's rates of innovation. And in order to try to damage China's economy and particularly its tech sector, the United States has imposed many rounds of aggressive sanctions, starting first under President Donald Trump and very much continuing under Joe Biden. This is a completely bipartisan policy of the new Cold War against China. However, these sanctions have failed to prevent China from technologically developing. Today, I'm going to be talking about the huge strides that China has taken, and particularly the Chinese firm Huawei, which has developed state-of-the-art high-tech chips, advanced chip technology for its phones, and particularly the Huawei Mate 60 Pro, which has just entered the market this September and has taken the world by storm. And this has shown that the United States' attempt to try to sabotage China's tech sector with this economic war has failed. China continues not only to advance technologically, but also to boost its own technological sovereignty. It is now developing these technologies entirely at home. It doesn't need help from U.S. corporations or other foreign firms to develop this advanced technology. But before I look at that case, I want to talk about another example of Western sanctions completely failing, and in some ways you could say backfiring. And this involves Russia. Today, Russia is one of the most sanctioned countries on Earth. 
The United States and the European Union have imposed many rounds of brutal sanctions on Russia over the proxy war in Ukraine, which is really a proxy war between NATO and Russia on Ukrainian territory. And U.S. President Biden made it very clear what Washington's goal is with the imposition of these sanctions. He said in early 2022 that the goal was to turn Russia's currency, the ruble, into rubble. Biden boasted that one ruble, at least briefly, was worth less than one U.S. penny. A penny is one one hundredth of a U.S. dollar. We are enforcing the most significant package of economic sanctions in history, and it's causing significant damage to Russia's economy. It has caused Russian economy to fight, frankly, crater. The Russian ruble is now down to 50 percent by 50 percent since Putin's announced his war. One ruble is now worth less than one American penny. One ruble is less than one American penny. And preventing Russia's central bank from propping up the ruble and to keep its value up. They're not going to be able to do that now. We cut Russia's largest banks from the international financial system and has crippled their ability to do business with the rest of the world. Now, of course, he didn't mention the fact that there are more than 140 million Russians living in Russia and they use the ruble in their everyday life. They get paid in rubles. And by trying to destroy their currency, this is not only hurting the Russian government and President Putin. This is hurting the entire country and 140 million civilians. But of course, sanctions are not a precise instrument despite the fact that Western governments constantly claim that they're targeted against individuals and they have supposed humanitarian exemptions. No, sanctions are a brutal instrument of economic warfare that often do serious damage and have major consequences for civilians living in countries all around the world. In Venezuela, for instance, mainstream experts have found that at least tens of thousands, perhaps over 100,000 civilians died because of the illegal unilateral sanctions imposed on the South American nation by the United States as part of its coup attempt to overthrow Venezuela's government and install a Washington appointed leader. Now, in the case of Russia, the economic sanctions actually have not done as much damage as the West would have hoped. The Russian ruble strengthened significantly after depreciating a lot against other currencies. A lot of that is because of the rise in the price of oil and other commodities, considering that Russia is one of the world's largest producers of commodities, especially oil, gas, certain minerals, and also wheat. And the irony is that not only have the sanctions failed to turn the ruble into rubble and devastate the Russian economy, they have backfired on European economies, caused a major energy crisis with skyrocketing energy costs. And in the meantime, the European Union is now importing record levels of Russian liquefied natural gas, LNG. The Financial Times published an article about this this August, which I want to look at. It is titled, EU Imports Record Volumes of Liquefied Natural Gas from Russia. It notes that the EU is set to import record volumes of liquefied natural gas from Russia this year, despite aiming for the bloc to wean itself off Russian fossil fuels by 2027. In the first seven months of 2023, Belgium and Spain 
were the second and third biggest buyers of Russian LNG behind China. Now, of course, China is a close ally of Russia, probably its most important ally. And of course, China buys huge amounts of Russian oil and gas. But after China, what are the two biggest importers of Russian LNG that is liquefied natural gas? Belgium and Spain, both members of the European Union and NATO, which are engaged in a proxy war against Russia in Ukraine. Overall, EU imports of liquefied natural gas were up 40% from January to July of this year compared with the same period in 2021. The EU did not import significant amounts of LNG before the war in Ukraine. Well, the war actually began in 2014 with the Western-backed coup that overthrew Ukraine's democratically elected geopolitically neutral government and installed a pro-Western regime. But anyway, the point is this new phase of the war. And why is that? Because previously, Europe was importing much of its gas needs from pipelines. And of course, what has happened to those pipelines? Well, one of the most important pipelines, which were a series of pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, connecting Russia to Germany, they were blown up. And we still don't know 100% who blew them up, but the Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh reported that it was the U U.S. government that blew up the Nord Stream pipelines. I have a separate video about that, which I will link to in the description below. Now, other Western governments have denied this and pointed the fingers. The New York Times, which is very close to U.S. intelligence agencies, has blamed Ukraine itself for blowing up the pipelines. That's very unlikely that Ukraine would have the advanced technology and know-how. But the point is that the pipelines were blown up by one of these actors. Not clearly Russia didn't blow up its own pipelines that it was using for you know, a very profitable enterprise. And it wanted to increase its energy relations with countries in Europe, especially Germany. But the pipelines were blown up. They were sabotaged. And other European countries vowed that they are not going to buy Russian pipeline gas, which ironically is significantly cheaper than the LNG that they are now buying, that they are now importing at record levels. So they're paying more for gas from Russia rather than the cheaper pipeline gas that they were getting before. This report in the Financial Times points out that European countries have been buying this Russian LNG on the spot market, which is the most expensive way to buy it. Instead of having these contracts which have a fixed price so the price doesn't fluctuate with demand and supply in global markets. And these countries in just half of 2023 have spent 5.3 billion euros. So this is another reason for the energy crisis in Europe, which is also fueling inflation in Europe because energy costs tend to lead to rising costs in all other industries because you need energy to power a business, to power the machines you use to create goods, to power the manufacturing sector in a country like Germany, which uses a lot of energy. You also need energy to power the ships and the trucks that you use to transport those goods. And this Financial Times article quotes a senior fossil fuel campaigner at the group Global Witness. So this is someone who is anti-Russian, but they acknowledge, quote, it's shocking that countries in the EU have worked so hard to wean themselves off piped Russian fossil gas only to replace it 
with the shipped equivalent. So, I mean, that's absolutely true. This is this is incredible. This is a major example of these sanctions not only failing, but completely backfiring. And there's a graph here showing the massive increase in EU imports of liquefied natural gas. And you can see specifically Spain, Belgium, and also France have been importing a lot. France in 2023 hasn't imported as much as it did in 2022, but it's still importing quite a bit. And the Netherlands is also continuing to import Russian liquefied natural gas. The FT points out that EU officials have pointed to an overall effort to phase out Russian fossil fuels by 2027, but warned that an outright ban on LNG imports risked prompting an energy crisis akin to last year when EU gas prices hit record highs of more than 300 euros per megawatt hour. So this is once again acknowledging the point that I just said, that this is, has been a major factor in causing the energy crisis in Europe and therefore in contributing to inflation. And now the second biggest supplier of LNG to the EU is Russia. And can you guess what the first biggest, the biggest supplier of LNG to the EU is? The United States. And of course, Washington has been very greatly profiting from the export of much more expensive liquefied natural gas to Europe instead of the much cheaper Russian pipeline gas that was being sent before the sabotage of the pipelines and the Western sanctions. And I actually have a separate video in which I explain how because of this energy crisis in Europe, in 2022, the United States became tied with Qatar as the largest exporter of liquefied natural gas in the entire world. So the United States and specifically U.S. corporations are benefiting because all of this is done by private for-profit companies. There are no state-owned oil and gas companies in the United States. But in Russia, the oil and gas companies are state-owned. And Russia is also making lots of money by selling much more expensive liquefied natural gas to Europe. So, I mean, the people in Brussels truly are geniuses, aren't they? Now, we've also seen another incredible example of this sanctions failure and that is that India has been buying record amounts of Russian oil. Nearly half of India's oil supplies now come from Russia. And India, in many cases, is buying this oil from Russia below market value at a major discount. So it's a great deal for New Delhi. And then what happens is that India refines that Russian oil and sells it to Europe at a nice markup. So India is profiting from selling Russian oil to Europe because Europe refuses to buy the Russian oil directly because of Western sanctions. So India benefits, Russia doesn't make as much money, and Europe ends up paying the most of all. And of course, this has been another significant factor in fueling the energy crisis and inflation in Europe. Because of this inflation, the real wages of workers in the Eurozone fell by 6.5% from 2020 until 2022, and they're paying more and more for energy. Well, India is benefiting, and now India is on the verge of overtaking Saudi Arabia as the largest oil exporter to Europe, despite the fact that India is not a major oil exporter, oil producer, and Saudi Arabia has historically been one of the world's top oil producers for decades. So once again, we see in Brussels, these diplomats truly are geniuses, aren't they? Now, 
the political class in Europe, if it were acting rationally, would act in its own economic interest and national interest and abandon this hopeless war, this proxy war against Russia, its largest energy partner. But instead, the European Union has been completely subordinated economically and politically to the United States. They're part of the same imperial structure. Washington, and specifically Wall Street actually, is at the heart of this imperialist structure of the, the world system. And Europe has essentially been made an appendage of the US empire. And they continue to commit economic suicide on behalf of Washington and Wall Street. And they continue to flood Ukraine with billions of dollars of weapons and support, despite the fact that we now know that it has been acknowledged by mainstream media outlets that Ukraine cannot win this war. And its so-called counteroffensive that we heard so much about for months has been a failure. Even the Washington Post, which is owned by the centi-billionaire Jeff Bezos, one of the most powerful, wealthiest oligarchs in human history, and of course, Amazon, which he founded, has contracts with the CIA. The Washington Post is very close to the CIA and U.S. intelligence agencies. They basically act as a mouthpiece for U.S. spy agencies. And they're now saying publicly that Ukraine has failed in its counteroffensive. This is an article that was published this August titled U.S. Intelligence Says Ukraine Will Fail to Meet Offensive's Key Goal. It points out that the U.S. intelligence community, when they say that, they usually mean the CIA. Not always, but usually. The Washington Post noted, the U.S. intelligence community assesses that Ukraine's counteroffensive will fail to reach the key southeastern city of Melitopol, this means that Kiev will not fulfill its principal objective of severing Russia's land bridge to Crimea in this year's push. Uh, that's as clear as it gets. I mean, you're never going to see the media say Ukraine failed, but that's pretty obvious there. And they also point out that this counteroffensive that failed saw tens of billions of dollars of Western weapons and military equipment and still fell short of its goals. This is by no means the only media outlet that has acknowledged this. Politico, another mainstream media outlet in the US, but also in Europe, acknowledged, quote, as Ukraine counteroffensive gets bogged down, it's backed to the drawing board. So another clear admission that the counteroffensive has failed. And yet despite this obvious fact, Washington has continued to flood Ukraine with weapons and continued to push Ukrainian soldiers into the meat grinder of this war they can't win. How many Ukrainians are going to die? Of course, NATO is willing to fight to the last Ukraine in order to try to weaken Russia, or as President Biden said very clearly, to replace Putin, to overthrow Putin. That, that's the goal of Washington. But meanwhile, it was just reported this September that the United States has officially decided to send depleted uranium munitions to Ukraine. These are notorious for poisoning Iraq when they were used during the U.S. military occupation of Iraq. Reuters pointed out that this is going to be part of another military aid package for Ukraine worth between $240 million and $375 million. That's among tens of billions of dollars more. And it points out that Opponents like the International Coalition to Ban Uranium Weapons say that they cause dangerous health risks when they're ingested or inhaled. 
when when the uranium dust in these weapons are ingested or inhaled and it causes cancers and birth defects and this is exactly what happened in iraq particularly in places like fallujah after the u.s military occupation the invasion and occupation so ironically that was to a country that the u.s was invading you ukraine is ostensibly a western ally and we're told that the west loves ukraine so much well I guess they love them so much that they're willing to poison them with uranium. But anyway, that's the reality of the situation. And on the subject of sanctions, it, the sanctions have clearly failed, just as the proxy war has clearly failed. And yet the policy is to continue, not only continue waging the, the new Cold War against Russia, it's to escalate. It's to move up yet another step on the escalation ladder by sending even more and more dangerous weapons. Now, in the case of Russia, the new Cold War that the United States and Europe are waging is very clear. I mean, it's a proxy war and there is an actual military conflict going on. In terms of China, there is also a new Cold War being waged. And fortunately, it has not reached the military stage, which is good because it could be very dangerous for the planet, considering that the U.S., Russia, China, these are all nuclear powers with lots of nuclear warheads. But the U.S., of course, is also threatening China and supporting separatists in Taiwan, which is recognized internationally under international law by almost every country on Earth as part of the People's Republic of China. Even on paper, the United States technically legally recognizes that Taiwan is part of China, and yet the U.S. has been supporting separatist forces and sending weapons to Taiwan. Anyway, the point is that the, the main way that the new Cold War is being waged by the United States against China is through economic warfare. There's also information warfare and propaganda and disinformation in the media. There is also psychological warfare and cyber warfare and many other forms of hybrid war. But the main form is economic warfare. And much of this started under Donald Trump. You could go back to the Barack Obama administration when Obama declared a so-called pivot to Asia, which really meant that the U.S. was going to move a lot of its military forces out of the so-called Middle East, West Asia, and instead move those forces toward East Asia to focus on containing and weakening China and increasing U.S. relations with East Asian allies and Southeast Asian allies like Korea, South Korea and Japan and the Philippines. But under Trump, we saw a massive escalation of the new Cold War on China, the imposition of brutal sanctions, the starting of a trade war. And those policies have very much continued at breakneck speed under Biden. This is entirely a bipartisan policy. Republicans and Democrats all agree on the new Cold War on China. However, it's not going as well as they would like it to go. And the Washington Post just published a story this September titled, New Phone Sparks Worry, China Has Found a Way Around U.S. Tech Limits. This article simultaneously admits that Washington has been waging a tech war, a technological war on China, and that that has been failing, that China continues to advance that the unilateral U.S. sanctions have failed to prevent China from technologically developing. This article notes that the Chinese tech firm Huawei has made a massive breakthrough with a new phone, the Mate 60 Pro, 
I'm going to show some video of that later compared to the latest iPhone and, and the incredible technology in, in this new phone. And this is the Washington Post refers this to, as to this as a new high water mark in China's technological capabilities with an advanced chip inside that was both designed and manufactured in China, despite onerous U.S. export controls intended to prevent China from making this technical jump. And the article notes that there has been hushed concern in Washington that U.S. sanctions have failed to prevent China from making this key technological advance. And it seems to suggest that U.S. sanctions will not stop China, but will rather spur China to redouble efforts to build alternatives to U.S. technology. So not only is the U.S. economic war on China failing in the U.S. tech war, it is actually in some ways strengthening China because it's becoming more sovereign and more independent. It is no longer dependent on U.S. corporations or other foreign corporations in order to import the technology and other parts it needs to create these kinds of high-tech phones. Now, the article points out that the timing of the announcement of this new Huawei phone was defiant because it was when the U.S. Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, was in Beijing. And I'm going to talk about her in a second. She's the one who vowed to wage a tech war on China. And Chinese state media declared that this showed that the U.S. trade war, that is the U.S. economic war, is a failure. Now, what's funny about this article is not only does it quote Chinese state media, it also quotes people in Washington who are as mainstream an establishment as you can get. Specifically, it quotes a consultant at the Albright Stonebridge Group, which is named after the former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright, a war criminal who infamously defended the genocidal U.S. sanctions on Iraq that led to the death of half a million Iraqi children. She, def she openly defended that live on TV. We have heard that a half a million children have died. I mean, that's more children than died when, when, in, in Hiroshima. And, and, you know, is the price worth it? I think this is a very hard choice, but the price, we think the price is worth it. And this consultant at this mainstream firm named after Madeleine Albright in Washington called the new Huawei phone in China, quote, a major blow to all of Huawei's former technology suppliers, mostly U.S. companies. The major geopolitical significance has been to show that it is possible to completely design without U.S. technology and still produce a product they say that might not be as quite as good as cutting edge Western models, but it's still quite capable. That's that's being very arrogant. And that is not true. I mean, I'll show a video in a second of how the camera on this new Huawei model is actually better than the camera on the latest iPhone. This is a clip that was going viral on Twitter, and it compares the Huawei Mate 60 Pro to the iPhone 14 Pro Max. And it's a side-by-side -side AB of the cameras. And they're taking a, a photo of the moon at night. And it's just night and day. I mean, pun intended, unintended. I mean, the quality of the image on this camera, on the new Huawei Mate 60 Pro, I mean, it, it is absolutely remarkable. And of course, pe many people say that the iPhone is probably one of the best phone models. And the I iPhone 14 Pro Max is the latest, most high-tech model. So 
I mean, China is really making huge strides in technological development. The mainstream financial media outlet Bloomberg, named after the U.S. billionaire oligarch Michael Bloomberg, also acknowledged the same thing in a very similar article titled Huawei Teardown Shows Chip Breakthrough in Blow to U.S. Sanctions and notes that Beijing is making early progress in a nationwide push to circumvent U.S. efforts to contain its ascent. Huawei's Mate 60 Pro is powered by a new Kareen 9000 chip that was manufactured in China by Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corps, that is SMIC, which has been sanctioned by the U.S. government. It notes that the processor in this phone is the first to utilize SMIC's most advanced 7 nanometer technology and suggests the Chinese government is making headway in attempts to build a domestic chip ecosystem. The Mate 60 Silicon raises questions about the efficacy of a U.S.-led global campaign to prevent China's access to cutting-edge technology with its export controls in 2022. The U.S. administration, the Biden administration, tried to draw a line at preventing China from getting access to 14 nanometer chips or about eight years behind the most advanced technology. So the U.S. was trying to prevent China from getting access to 14 nanometer chips, but China has just developed seven nanometer chips that it's using in this latest Huawei phone. Now, Bloomberg points out the U.S. has also blacklisted both Huawei and SMIC. So, so much for the free market and competition. But now China has demonstrated it can produce at least limited quantities of chips five years behind the cutting edge, inching closer to its objective of self-sufficiency in the critical area of semiconductors. And Bloomberg also pointed out that the announcement of this new phone, the release of this new phone, came during a visit to China by U.S. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, and her agency is what has imposed the export controls on China. Now, that name is very important because this is the top U.S. official who admitted that Washington's goal is to prevent China from innovating to prevent China from technologically developing. And this was back in 2021. Gina Raimondo said, quote, if we really want to slow down China's rate of innovation, we need to work with Europe. So calling for a united front between the United States and Europe, the Western powers working together to slow down China's rates of innovation. I mean, this is as clear as it gets. And they're failing. The Western sanctions on China and Russia have been failing. They're ironically hurting Europe the most economically, which is further subordinating Europe to the United States and, and hurting European workers. I mentioned that the wages of wor European workers, the real wages, have declined by 6.5% in the past two years, from 2020 until 2022. And Still, there is a major energy crisis. There's a cost of living crisis. This is also fueling political instability. And a lot of this is because of the backlash, the backfiring of Western sanctions on Russia and also China. And yet the response of the political class, of the ruling class in these Western capitals is to just crack down even further, to send 
more missiles and high-tech weapons to Ukraine to fight against Russia, to impose more sanctions on Russia, to impose more sanctions on China, to restrict the export of more technologies to China. And ironically, in addition to hurting Europe, of course, in many ways, the U.S. continues to benefit. U.S. corporations are benefiting. Europe is deindustrializing. But also, Russia and China, in some ways, at least in the medium to the long term, are benefiting. In the short term, it might cause some economic damage. I'm certainly not going to ever downplay the brutal impact of sanctions, especially on countries that are less economically developed, that are smaller countries, that don't have a significant industrial base, countries like Venezuela, like Cuba, like Syria. But for big countries like China and Russia, yes, it does some economic damage, but it also in the medium to the long term helps them because they're now more economically sovereign and technologically sovereign. They're no longer dependent on Western corporations, on U.S. corporations. They're now developing their own high-tech manufacturing sectors with more and more high value added in the production process. No longer just toys, you know, like Chinese-made toys or things like that. The stereotype of China going back several decades. China is now at the cutting edge of technological production. And Russia is also still a major producer, especially of military technology. So this is the situation we're in. Now, of course, do not expect the political leaders in Western capitals to acknowledge the failure of the sanctions policy because it's really the only thing they have left, aside from full-out military war, because they don't actually want competition. They certainly don't want cooperation. They want to restore their precious unipolar empire that they briefly enjoyed in the 1990s and early 2000s, and that is long gone. We are very firmly in a multipolar world, economically, politically, and that explains the desperation of the imperialist politicians in Western capitals. They are trying to reimpose their economic hegemony on the world to exploit the natural resources of countries like Russia, which is full of natural resources, to exploit the labor and, and the human capital and know-how and technological capabilities of people in China. And yet, China and Russia refuse to be subordinated. More and more countries around the world refuse to be subordinated to Western capital. That's the situation we're, we're seeing today. It's an incredible historical moment. And as always, I will be regularly reporting on it and analyzing the most important news of the day. I'm Ben Norton, the editor of Geopolitical Economy Report. I want to thank everyone who joined me today. Please subscribe on whatever platform you are watching or listening on. If you're on YouTube, please subscribe and like the video. It helps to promote a material in the algorithm. Also, every video is released as an audio-only podcast version. You can subscribe to our podcast. Just look up Geopolitical Economy Report. And then if you want to support the work that we do here, please consider going to geopoliticaleconomy.com support. There are a few ways you can support us. The best way is you can go to patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. You can become a patron and help sustain our work. We are completely independent. We have no institutional sponsors. We rely entirely on small donations from viewers and listeners like you. Once again, I want to thank everyone. I'll see you next time.